So let's look at John 10. I, uh, I mentioned Sunday, John 11, and with every intent to go into that. But then I decided, no, I, there's too much uh, in the next section of John 10 that I, I've got to deal with it. So I want to look at that really big block of John 10, 11 to 30. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand or a hireling and not a shepherd is not the owner of the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches, pay attention to that word, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Kalos, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. Now that's important language. That snatching, that stealing. Okay, pay attention to that. Uh, no one snatches me away. No one snatches my life away. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This commandment to lay down and take up, I received from my father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon that is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others are saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed man, or one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. What a question. If you're the Christ. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Okay. So that's a lot of, a lot of scripture I know to work through, so we'll just pick a couple of the really key points, the high points of this. First, uh, he's obviously continuing shepherding language, the idea of shepherds and pasture and sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is one of the great I am, ego amy, I am that I am, hearkening back to what uh, God reveals as his personal name to Moses, I am, Yahweh. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Um, you can think, uh, you, you can see a reference here to Ezekiel 34, which is about 
God's judgment against the bad shepherds of Israel. And those bad shepherds were priests. They were the religious leaders of Israel. And they were considered failures at this point. Um, the language is used to communicate uh, the welfare and safety of the flock. I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. I protect the sheep from the, from the wolf that may come and scatter the sheep, pick off the weak ones, or, or try to kill the sheep. Um, those who are hired don't do that. But a shepherd who is good will do that. Now, historically, a couple of things about sheep, or rather about shepherds, they would count their flocks usually twice a day. They would count their flocks. That was a daily discipline, all right? Time to count the flock. And because a shepherd was responsible for missing sheep, the owner of the flock might say, I hired you, you're the shepherd, or this is your own flock. I've hired you, and I own 100 sheep. If you bring back 99, you either find it and bring it back, or you pay me for it. You bought it. You lose it, you buy it. Okay? Now, that's interesting because the responsibility and ownership for a true shepherd or to a true shepherd is that they were required to, if they take out 100, they bring back 100, with one exception, if a thief and a robber gets away with it, gets away with stealing one. They, they were not held liable, but they were held liable if they didn't defend the flock. They had to fight. There are records of shepherds dying from being beaten to death, bludgeoned to death by thieves and robbers. And there's even some rare occasions in which shepherds die from wolf attacks. That did happen. And they were expected to fight. And if they didn't, it would be like being a coward in the military. You turned your back on your troops and you ran. That would be cowardice. That same dynamic is with a shepherd. If you turned your back on the flock, you were a coward, which was serious, serious business. So, and again, lots of language here about the wolf coming, etc. Now, um, if you could, pop quiz here, if you could embed this in context, remember uh, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to seal, kill, destroy. Who are these thieves and robbers? Yeah, priests, Pharisees. It's the Pharisees that are doing the stealing. It's the Pharisees that are doing the destroying. It's the Pharisees that are leading out and killing. Uh, it's not a direct reference to Satan, which we commonly think. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to have life and to give life and give it abundantly. And we go, oh, well, that must be the opposite of Jesus, which would be Satan. No, it's not. It's the Pharisees. They're the ones that are stealing and killing and destroying. So... When he says in verse, um, verse 14, uh, a shift occurs. It's very, very important to pay attention to this. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. He repeats that idea again. Kalos, I am good. Kalos, rather, kalos. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Now, I, boy, really, this is exciting. I want you to pay attention. By the way, the word know is gnosko. And it's an active, present active indicative verb, which means I really do, in fact, know it. I really do know this thing. Like, I know Lisa, and Lisa does know me. That's an indicative verb. Not subjunctive. She might know me, and I might. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't know her. 
It's indicative. It's a verification or a statement of reality. Yes, I know her. So watch what he says in verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Got it? Look at verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, let's, let's park there. Cody, you've heard this before. How well do you think the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father? What do you think? How would you describe the level of intellectual <coughs> unity, uh, knowledge, experience, exposure to each other? How, how, how would you describe that? How well do God and Jesus know each other? One and the same? Well, they're the Trinity. Part of the Trinity, right? Yeah. What else? Any, would you say there are secrets between them? No hidden secret areas of their lives? Like God's up there going, oh, I didn't know that about you. Oh, why didn't you tell me that? You've been holding that for eternity. How did I didn't know that. Or Jesus saying, Dad, why do you keep hiding things from me? Would you think it's a total, comprehensive, complete... Utterly thorough sense of knowing. Jesus does say that there are things like whenever he's going to come back, he doesn't know when he's coming mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's obviously right. at least that. Yeah. Which is great. So another question is bag, Lance, you're paying attention. What's that? If you're asking, they know each other. Right, yeah. Do, do God and Jesus know each other? But Lance is on to something. Right. So the question is bag, does that mean his knowledge was limited while on earth? Not while he's with the Father in heaven. So is that, that's one of the things. Because so a great question. if he knew him intimately here, he wouldn't have had to go pray. Very good, very good. You know, because yeah. he sought yeah. God's will. Yeah, yeah, that's really good, yeah. And he even said, hey, your will be done. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever that is. Because he's had obedience. Sure, that sure. That he was the yeah. man part of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is clearly language <coughs> of dependence on the Father. And yet, though, Lance, and you're, you're so smart to pick up on that, and Joni, the verb to know is one that's very personal. In fact, Keener, Dr. Craig Keener, argues that this is intimacy like that of a husband and wife, an intimacy that, exceed, that exceeds the biblical prophets. Like Moses was friends with God, like a man speaks face to face. This language communicates that the level of knowledge and intimacy between the Father and the Son is deep and fascinating. Now, put these two things together. In verse 14, what is Jesus comparing and contrasting about intimacy of knowledge between 14 and 15? Joni. Well, the relationship between us and him and then him and God. Yes, is... What's the word? Coterminous. But is it more specifically the believers of Israel in 14? Who, so who, yeah, who is the you? Or who, who, are, who are my own? Who are those? Those who believe. Those who believe. Those are the sheep that hear his voice. Whether it's an Israelite who follows him or a poor peasant or even a Pharisee like Nicodemus who repents. Well, I was thinking those of Israel because the other sheep... Are those not 
Gentiles, believers? It's, it's arguable. That's a cool question because some say that the sheep of another fold are possibly Gentiles. Or if you're Mormon, uh, you say that God popped over to America, Jesus popped over to America and appeared to the Native American Indians. <laughs> How's that for some craziness? So. Uh, I'm covered either way. <laughs> Steve, you're in. <laughs> right to the Choctaw Nation right Actually, there. Actually, yesterday went on a pharmacy Christian study about like the Old Testament. And Israel, I think in basic Hebrew, is just God's chosen, if I remember right, chosen people. And you see instances in the Old Testament where people outside of the tribes were saved or, you know, were chosen by God still. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's always had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, by the way, Israel in Hebrew is two words, Yisra, Yisra El. And Yisra is to fight, to contend with. And El is God. And so Israel means God fights for. Or even God fights with. <laughs> like sometimes my problem child, you know. So notice the cotrimity in Latin, the word is terminus. Uh, uh, Stephen, you've laid cable. Uh, Michael, you may have, and Lance, Cody. Like there's cable that runs over the ceiling, right? Well, it terminates at that board where it terminates. There's, there's an end point in Latin, a terminus, okay? When you say there's something coterminous, you're saying two things go to the same place. They have a shared end point or shared meeting, thing A, thing B become the same. They, they go to the same end point. So watch how this dynamic works. The level of knowledge and intimacy between Jesus and his sheep is coterminous with the level of intimacy and knowledge that is shared between the Father and the Son. Okay. Which begs a really important question. Do you have the sensation that the this, this sense that your relationship with Jesus Christ is uh, distant, detached, dull, boring, uh, quiet? He ignores you. You feel far from him. I mean, how clo- how intimate is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Because Jesus declares for those sheep who do listen to his voice, it's the same level of int- intimacy that he shares with his father. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, so what I want you to do is get ready to make a couple notes. Here's what I've done. There are several coterminous statements in John's gospel where whatever happens to thing A, it's equal and happens to thing B. Okay. There's several coterminous statements. So the first one is what we just looked at, John 10, 14, 15. The second one is John 15, 9. John 15, 9. Cody, you remember this one? As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Right? So the question, there you go. How how much does God love Jesus? Total, pure, comprehensive love, unconditional, unending, unfailing love, the ultimate expression of love then if thing A is true, then thing B is true. So I have loved you. Make your dwelling in my love. That's 59. Look at 17, 18. You can write that down. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. (laughs) 
As I'm sent, they're going to be sent. What happens to Jesus happens to us. Look at 1719. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. Sanctify means to set apart as holy. So I sanctify myself so that they themselves may also be sanctified. But it's true for thing A, it's true for thing B. Look at 2021. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. So just how in to God is Jesus and just how into Jesus is God. Total unity. <clears throat> Ultimate expression of unity. And he says that they may also be in us. So how much God and Jesus is in me and how much Chris Perry is in God. How much Cody is in Jesus. How much Jesus is in Cody. If he's not confused, misunderstood, and miseducated or insane, then the answer is total and comprehensive intimacy between Cody and Jesus, Jesus and Cody, God and Cody, God and Jesus. Okay? Now look, continue, John, John 17 is rich with this stuff. 22, 23, um, or rather 25, 26, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. And then verse 21, John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. So, so that's what that's roughly eight references in John's gospel that represent a theological or onto, you want some fancy words ontological cotrimity. Ontology is the study of the classification of things according to their nature. A dog goes in the dog column. Cat goes into the cat column. Don't put a dog in the cat column. Ontologically, ontos being, they're not the same. They're different. So ontologically speaking, what happens to Jesus happens to me. What happens to God and Jesus happens to me. It's ontological co-trimity. What happens to thing A happens to thing B. Wow. Okay. 16, I have other sheep, Stephen. Is that Gentiles? That may be a logical conclusion. Um, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. All of these things point to Ezekiel 34. Okay. For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life. Yeah, so I'm going to take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Uh, I think this is a reference again to the idea of stealing, thievery. And that the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they do not steal Christ's life. He gives it. He gives it. So, um, let me see here. Verse, I want to jump down to 27 to 30. Uh, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. All right? Verse 27, my sheep. No one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. 
What do you think that's a reference to? That's, that's kind of summary information. What do you think it's a reference to? If you put this in context. What does this whole block of teaching follow? It follows from one event that stirs up all kinds of trouble. Chapter 9, do you remember? I would argue that chapter 9, verses like 11 to 30, the whole chapter, it's about how the Pharisees move in like a thief and a robber, and they try to snatch the miracle of the blind man being healed. They try to snatch the miracle away. They try to snatch the belief in Jesus away, steal and kill and destroy what Jesus done. I think that's the, that's the historical reference. My sheep hear my voice. No one is allowed to snatch the man who now sees to snatch that miracle and the miracle of belief away. And I've got my father on my side on this one. In fact, one of the things that we can pick at just as a closing comment for turning it over to you is in verse 30, I and the father are one. Uh, there's two ways to interpret that. Um, Philip, you can say it's hamausia, uh, which is Greek for the same substance, an argument that in terms of ontology and nature, Jesus is in fact God and God is in fact Jesus. Or what Calvin said, no, he's not trying to do that. He's trying to say God and I are on agreement. We are in full agreement on this, that no one is going to destroy what has happened in this blind man's life. So, uh, okay, you're the, you're the body of Christ. Give wisdom about this uh, when, you, when you look at Christ's insistence that sheep, that he's going to protect the sheep, and he's not going to let a Pharisee destroy it, destroy the work of the ministry. <coughs> and the fact that um, you have this rich, rich language in John where what ha what's true of him is true of us. Knowledge, intimacy, love, being sent, the, sent, the idea that we're called. What do you think? How, what difference would this potentially make in our lives? What are your thoughts? of you know, in high positions that want to lead us wrong you know that ha are prideful are lead us away yeah that's you know, a great question wrong, wrong teaching you know, they yeah. want to they want to skew the, the uh, word of God to their own mm -hmm. belief system yeah. I, I have to say yes 
Okay, and I talk very little of political things, but let me get well, I'm this not out. even talking about political. I mean, there's people that say they're so part they're of the church. church. Oh, even in the church, yeah. 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 Church. yeah. I mean, Insider that. as well as outsider, sure, yes. sure. Right. Uh, I was just talking to someone today who's very concerned about Hillary being president, and here's why. Because one of the, the long-term impact that a president has, certainly it's some policy, but where do they have the longest-term impact and what? Their appointments to the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And that when you have someone as excessively radical and liberal mm -hmm. as Hillary, uh, you run the risk of her stacking the Supreme Court to such a degree that uh, laws could be passed mm -hmm. making hate speech illegal. Mm -hmm. Right? Martial law. Yeah. Do you know what hate speech is? Right? What do, we, what do you know about hate speech? What's the idea? Preaching a sermon can be hate speech. Exactly. It can right get now, it's, it's interpreted as anything that just offends you. Yeah. Right. So, if, if it's that uh, generalized, yeah. you know. I don't like yeah. It. You know, so is it hate speech to say that uh, a black person is bad because they're black, but there's something innately wrong with them because of their skin color? Yes. That's hate speech or equal to a Caucasian or Hispanic or anybody, right, or an Asian. Uh, but where do you draw the line? Okay, what if the church takes a stance on homosexuality? And that we say historically and consistently when you read the scriptures, the homosexual position cannot be supported in scripture, and therefore we believe the traditional views of marriage are still applicable and we will defend them and we do not engage in endorse gay marriage, and in fact, we believe it is sin. Now, is that hate speech? Where do you cross the line? You know? And uh, it's possible that if the Supreme Court uh, continues its trend toward liberalism, that we are just a few laws away, or not many laws away, from putting so much pressure on the church to shut her mouth. And certainly it could be construed, and I realize we may be reaching here, that the church, uh, that hate, spe hate speech could be uh, c committed when you go witnessing. When you go to share the gospel and say, you know what, because of your lack of faith in Jesus Christ, you are condemned to hell. <gasps> Just the idea That's of, abuse. Judge of judgment. So is that stuff that steals and kills and destroys the work of God? Sure does. The Freedom From Religion Foundation. Boy, you want to you go down that path and go to their website? Wow. They are vicious in what they're doing to schools across the nation. You know. It's no joke. Uh, we, are, we are not far from having our money reminted and having the name uh, or the statement of God we trust that will be coming off. It's probably, we're not far from that at all. Because that is blending church and state. So it's very real. These things are very real. And, uh, and I'm not trying to say that, that Trump is uh, an evangelical Christian and he's going to lead us back to righteousness. No. I mean, he may do the same thing and stack the Supreme Court with long-term leaders who will lead us down the path of liberalism. 
and continue the trend of globalization. So, uh, and all of those things are, are way above my training and my, my skill sets. But Cody, you want to say something? Okay. Anybody else? How does this apply? Who are, who are the thieves, the robbers that steal, kill, and destroy today? Uh, are, they, are, are they staff, church staff? In some churches I've been in, I'd say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are they pastors? Sure. Are they deacons? Yep. Are they church members with a chip on their shoulder? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Going through Old Testament history, after Joshua leaves Israel to take over the land of Canaan and the tribes get together, what is, y'all remember what the nation of Israel fails to do completely as God commanded them to do? Mm-hmm. He said it destroyed everything that was there. Yeah. Why? Because he did not want them to intermarry yep. into their policies. And when they did, they abandoned their God. Yeah. And we, as a church, we have to be careful not to intermarry into the postmodern secular world. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll need another prophet in a sense. Yeah. Which is Jesus ultimately, but yeah. someone else to yeah. yeah, it's a problem. And there's lots of talk about Philip, you know, you know. How many carrots should the church dangle? You know, how close to the world do you get to be attractive? And yet, to be in it, not of it, you know? And uh, sometimes our, our churches look as much like a concert or, or a comedic hour by the church, by the pastor who specializes in comedy. I know, it's not you. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not funny at all. <laughs> My jokes are terrible. So, uh, you know, it, it, and... You can't you can't tell uh, a lot of a lot of difference between a lot of secular things. So. Yep, where's the line? So, um, anybody else on why this is so important? Or how about this? What if you were fully persuaded that he knew you intimately? You were really convinced about that. And you were really convinced that you were radically loved that way. And that you were just as sent as he was sent. What if those just those three things were real? Mm-hmm. What potential difference would it make in our lives? To be that known, to be that intimate with, to be that loved, to be that sent. What, what potential difference could it make in our lives? I guess that leads me to another question. Absolutely. If we understood that. Yeah, absolutely. How would we, how could we find it that we have that community? Yeah. Yeah. It's so much our own view of ourselves mm-hmm. that affects how we relate to others. Yeah. I think one thing it means for me is that I spend my life giving my life away for other people. Because that's what he did. And that as he was sent, I am sent. And as he went about healing the broken hearts, the broken bodies, broken minds of Israel, that that's what I should do. So. Anybody else? Stephen, you're going to make some worship through scripture and <laughs> and Lord's Supper. I left my guitar.
Sorry, we saw Philip. Church of Christ Higgs. So, so much, um, you know, worship, you know, we're all mature enough to know that and comprehend that worship isn't necessarily just music, right? I mean, we understand that. But it is literally your spiritual act of worship, giving, sacrificing yourself, your body, um, as a li- offering your body as a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual act of worship. So... I guess maybe right now, instead of instead of singing, one because I don't have my guitar, but um, I get nervous when we do acapella stuff for some reason. But I'm gonna opt out. So maybe we could use this time as a spiritual act of worship, just to, especially before Lord's Supper, which we kind of do anyways. We're commanded is just to examine. Uh, yourself Um, ask yourself what are you doing with your body Um, how are you using it as an offering Um, are you using your body to serve yourself to serve others or are you just stagnant and really not doing it it's really not serving a purpose it's just kind of existing and flowing you know just making it a day at a time? Um, or are you actually using it in a very purposeful, meaningful way uh, to to serve him and to expand his kingdom? You know, can you... <clears throat> and that kind of blurs into a line where you start thinking, you know, having a mindset of doing works and then you get overwhelmed with doing works and you forget Um, I think a good corrective of that is just always examining and always questioning your motives and what it is you're doing and how you're allocating those resources Um, so I'd say before we take the Lord's Supper um, you can use this time as as just a time to examine that ask yourself that or if we even want to share publicly with one another you know if you're struggling with that or if you if you need encouragement on how to do that better or how to back off or if you should back off I know for me personally um, it's real easy to get overwhelmed um, with what I'm doing um, I was speaking I don't remember who it was just uh, just last week about ministry and how I get it so overwhelmed, and it just seems like I want. And I'm telling you guys this. It just seems like at one day it just kind of is so much that you kind of want. Like I want to say, oh, I wish I could just quit everything and just take a take a break for like six months, <laughs> you know. And then I'll rearrange some things and pull away from doing some stuff and get refreshed. But it's really not that it doesn't take that long to get refreshed because I remember why I'm doing it. And you remember, I could easily do other things to serve myself and spend a lot of energy doing that. 
getting better at certain things or making more money or, you know, um, all those things. But I think it's because of the goodness of Christ. It When I take those breaks, I think I'm always driven right back to doing one because I see that there's a need that I was able to fulfill for people. And then also just because it, they're good things, you know, that, that proclaim him and, It's almost like a shame to to stop doing for others, you know. So just pick it right back up, keep going, and ask for mercy and grace and energy and mm-hmm. and strength that only He can provide. So, um, yeah. So anybody else is welcome to voice anything. mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion brought out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion and haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desired honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, but don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and I will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood. O God, who saves, then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit with burnt offerings and and whole burnt offerings. And bulls will again be sacrificed. Do you all have a desire, like, 
it's real easy when you speak to a non-believer to um, bring up sin, you know, and forgiveness that God offers. And that can be a motivational, you know, um, of wanting someone to come to know Christ so they can experience forgiveness. But I wonder, like, do you all, are you motivated also by letting them know that they can have that intimacy with God and not just the forgiveness, but there's something beyond that, the hope and having that intimacy with him and if not going back to examine yourself like is it because maybe we've experienced the forgiveness and we concentrate that but we haven't really heard his voice or is that intimate is what we read tonight I find like if Jesus says the father and I are like this and so my followers my sheep and I are like this and like Chris said I'm thinking well there are times I don't feel real real close or maybe I do feel close but it certainly can't be as close as what the Father and Jesus yeah. are feeling so am I do, still doing something to prevent that or you know what am I not doing that's not obtaining that level because if Jesus says that's the nature of the relationship uh, the purpose is it to spur us on to you know become better you know and, and what's the motivation really for wanting that intimacy Stepping into a reality, just like stepping into um, where Jesus says, "I've overcome the world," and in that relationship, you have overcome everything that Jesus has. And it's just a stepping into it. Sure, it's just the, the knowing. It is the nature of the relationship versus what I can create the relationship to be. And that is ontology, mm-hmm. admitting what it really is. Mm-hmm. And is Christ a liar? So if he said it's true, mm-hmm. then who am I to say, nope, 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 nope. I don't feel close to you, so therefore I can't be close to you. When in reverse, it should be, I am close to you, therefore I will be. Yes, and my feelings will get in line. Right. You know, the tail didn't wag the dog. The dog wags the tail. Truth never, uh, feelings never validate truth. Never. You're right, Cole, you're wrong. Step into the reality. It's yours. It's there. It's the acceptance of the gift. Yes. Yes. That's what's beautiful about Psalms is David has all of his intimate prayers and songs. His highs and his lows written down. Yeah. Probably the strongest I've ever been in my faith is when I'm most intimate with God, the most quiet moments when I'm singing, when I'm worshiping. He's giving me a gift to sing. I love to sing. Often, though, it's just to Him, and it's just little songs that only He and I have. And I really hope that everyone has that sort of prayer or that sort of song that they can just, at any point of their life,
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <clears throat> Dave, you are. Will you pray for us? Father God in heaven, we uh, come before you as we uh, approach your throne, though we don't deserve it. You provided a solution for that through your son, Jesus Christ. We cannot approach you otherwise but through him. So we thank you. Praise you as we Take these next few moments to remember the sacrifice of your son on the cross, your one and only son, his broken body and the shed blood for us. It should be a celebration. So we thank you, Father, pray that your spirit be with us, guide us, work in our hearts and our minds as we consider all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray.